0: And he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord, and he said, O altar, altar! Thus says the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he slay the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee. Thus the prophet predicts the destruction of this idolatrous altar. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 106, Altars and Alteration. I'm Mayor Solovejic. Pel Dan in northern Israel, one can experience a fascinating archaeological discovery. The excavation of the site of a large altar, a location of Israelite cultic worship. What one encounters there is the site of one of the most reviled sins in biblical history, an embodiment of the failure of a king who had had so much potential, a king who attempted to destroy the memory of Jerusalem and of the house of David, a king who created an entirely new holiday to replace The biblical festival of Sukkot. One can further see set up at that site in Tel Dan a metal framework of a Mizbech or altar, illustrating where the sacrifices of this pseudo Sukkot would have taken place. The king of which I speak was Yeravam, the first monarch of the ten northern tribes of Israel. And for this sin, the destruction of Yeravam's house is divinely declared. In the end, to stand there in Tel Dan is to be inspired, because to visit this altar, And this archaeological site in our day and age is to ponder the eternity of Jerusalem and of the legacy of the house of David. After Solomon, Israel splits into two kingdoms. Rechavam, son of Solomon, rules Judah from Jerusalem, and the north is led by Yeravam, Jeroboam. Yeravam knows that on the holiday of Sukkot, all of his subjects throughout the ten northern tribes would descend to Jerusalem to mark the festival, in the temple, in the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. This, Yeravam thought, would reconnect his subjects to that sacred city in the south, and thereby to the Davidic dynasty. Chapter 12, verse 26. And Yeravam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again to their Lord, namely Rehavam, to Rehavam king of Judah, and they shall kill me, and go back to Rehavam, king of Judah. And so Yeravam seeks to separate northern Israel from Jerusalem by creating temples of his own, one in Beit El and one in Dan. And he moves the celebration of Sukkot for his subjects to a month later. Thus the next verse. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt and he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to worship before that one. And he made a house of high places and made priests from all ranks of the people who were not of the sons of Levi. The altar in Dan, of course, is the site in Tel Dan that can be visited today. There, cultic rites were offered in worship of golden calves as part of an attempt to cut Israel off from the Sukkot celebrations in Jerusalem. Iravam further cancels the usual Sukkot celebration, creating a holiday that will take place 30 days later in the middle of the next month, the month now known as Cheshvan, giving his subjects a Sukkot of their own with idolatrous celebrations, as we are told in verse 32. So Yeravam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like the feast that is in Judah, and he offered upon the altar. The Hebrew here is important. We are informed that Yeravam created a Chag, like the Chag that was kept in Judah. Chag is the biblical word for Sukkot, and so this means that Yeravam is making an idolatrous Chag in the next month, complete with golden calves. Why was it Sukkot, above all the holidays, that so worried Yeravam? The answer begins with the fact that throughout the First Temple Period, and, it seems, at least in parts of the Second Temple Period as well, Sukkot was the supreme holiday of the Temple. It was on Sukkot that all Israel streamed to the Temple. It was on Sukkot that all Israel spent a great deal of time in the Temple. It was on Sukkot that Israelites fully comprehended the meaning and experience of the Temple. It is no coincidence that Solomon first dedicated the Temple around the time of Sukkot. And, moreover, that sacrifices in the beginning of the Second Temple era also began Sukkot time. Now, of course, ladies and gentlemen, you might well ask, isn't Pesach, Passover, more central to our identity? Given the seriousness of the obligation of the Paschal offering, shouldn't Passover have been the holiday when all Israel streamed to the temple? Perhaps yes, but the hard truth is that it would seem that during the first temple period this was not the case. Indeed, we will later learn in the Book of Kings of how the great king Josiah, Yoshio, one of the last monarchs of the Davidic house, gathers all Israel for Passover, and we are further informed by the Book of Kings that a Passover like that had not been held for some time. The reason is linked, perhaps, to the fact that biblical Israel was an agricultural society. We will soon see that through much of the history of the first temple, the Torah will not be entirely observed or embraced. Passover, Pesach, and Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, take place during the farming season. Therefore, many Israelites might have had the incentive to stay home, and even for those who were truly observant of Torah law, those Israelites would have had enough, economic incentive, to come to Jerusalem for Passover only for one day, offer the Paschal lamb, and then ultimately go back to their farm. Indeed, Nachmaninies writes that the reason that the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, is only one day rather than seven is because it occurs in the throes of agricultural engagement, and therefore even devout farmers could not spare more than one day off. So God, understanding this, created a holiday that was only one day long. But Sukkot falls out after all the harvesting is done. The farmers have yet to plant, and therefore everyone, everyone, was able to come to Jerusalem. Thus, Sukkot was the time when Israelites would reconnect to the temple. Professor Jeffrey Rubenstein describes the importance of Sukkot to the temple in Jerusalem as follows, quote, Sukkot, after all, was Hechag, the festival, a title found in both biblical and rabbinic sources. The autumnal harvest concluded the agricultural year and peasants now free from the arduous labors could journey to Jerusalem for the celebrations. Although Passover and Shavuot, Pentecost, were also pilgrimages, they occurred in spring and summer during the middle of the harvest season and were not as well attended. Josephus too distinguishes Sukkot by noting that this festival is observed by us with special care and that it is especially sacred. Rabbinic accounts of the Sukkot temple rituals, the water libations, the willow procession, the circumambulations around the altar, Simchat Beit Shoiva, with its dancing, acrobatics, and flaming torches, the recitation of psalms, the waving of lulavs, gives sense of the pageantry and splendor that characterize the festal week. The rabbinic remark, He who never saw Simchat beta Shoeva never saw true joy, expresses the impression made by these ceremonies. End quote. This is what Rubinstein writes, citing the biblical description of Sukkot as well as the rabbinic description of Simchat beta Shoeva, the festival of the water drawing that took place in the temple. Rubinstein adds that every Sukkot was a rededication of the temple and of Israel's connection to it. Quote, These were not simply dedications per se, but dedications of the temple. And they took place on Sukkot because Sukkot was the temple festival par excellence. Solomon dedicated the first temple on Sukkot because it was the leading pilgrimage when the bulk of the population would journey to Jerusalem. Ezra 3, 1 through 6, associates the resumption of regular sacrificial worship with Sukkot because a functioning cult meant Sukkot could be celebrated again. End quote. We are now, ladies and gentlemen, able to understand the severity of Yeravam's sin. It is not only that all Israelites in Yeravam's kingdom are plunged into idolatrous acts, though that is awful enough. Note well how the Bible stresses the fact that Jews would go all the way up to Dan in the north in order to sacrifice. What the Bible is telling us is that Yeravam drew people further and further away from Jerusalem. And while the rulership of David's dynasty had been removed by God from the northern kingdom, nevertheless, it was still Jerusalem's temple that remained the dwelling place of the divine, designated forever as the locus of Jewish longing. Yeravam, chosen as a potentially great king, undermines this entirely, cuts his subjects off from Jerusalem. Therefore, as Yuravam stands on one of the altars he has made, a prophet approaches and declares the doom yet to come. Chapter 13, verse 2. And he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord, and he said, O altar, altar! Thus says the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he slay the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee. Thus the prophet predicts the destruction of this idolatrous altar. The doom of the altar will be preceded by the doom of the royal dynasty. Thus the prophet Achiah the Shilonite is informed in chapter 14, verse 7. Go tell your Avam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Since I exalted thee from among the people, and made thee prince over my people Israel, and rent the kingdom away from the house of David, and gave it to thee, and yet thou hast not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments, and who followed me with all his heart, to do that only which was right in mine eyes. But thou hast done more evil than all that were before thee, For thou hast gone and made thee other gods and molten idols to provoke me to anger and hast cast me behind thy back. Therefore, behold, I will bring evil upon the house of Yeravim and will cut off from Yeravam every male person and him that is shut up and him that is left free in Israel and will take away the remnant of the house of Yeravam, as a man takes away dung till it be all gone. The prophesied doom unfolds. One of Yeravam's sons dies. And ultimately, after the king is succeeded by another son named Nadav, a rebellion against Yeravam's successor erupts. Chapter 15, verse 28. And Basha, the son of Achia of the house of Issachar conspired against him, and Basha smote him at Gibaton, which belonged to the Philistines, for Nadav and all Israel laid siege in Gibaton. Even in the third year of Asa king of Yehudah did Basha slay him and reigned in his stead. And it came to pass when he reigned that he smote all the house of Yeravam. He left not to Yeravam one that breathed until he had destroyed him, according to the saying of the Lord. Thus is the house of Yeravam in the northern kingdom replaced by Basha. But Basha continues Yeravam's idolatrous ways, and, as providential punishment, Basha too is slain by his servant Zimri, who attempts to seize the throne, but reigns briefly, until Omri, a general of the Israelite army, marches toward the palace of the king, and Zimri dies by burning the palace down upon himself. This brings us to the most important royal family of the northern kingdom, beginning with Omri, who is succeeded by his son, one of the worst kings in the Bible, Ahav, Ahab, to whose story we shall turn tomorrow. Today, the area of Dan is one of the many interesting places that is toured in Israel during the holiday seasons, including Sukkot. It is striking, therefore, to ponder Jews in Israel today, visiting the location of Yeravam's altar, where a false Sukkot was observed and highlighting themselves the fact that today, the true Sukkot has not been forgotten. And there's another irony here, for even as Tel tells us of Yeravam's attempt to cut Israel off from the house of David, at the same time, it is that very archaeological site that has given us an important discovery that testifies to the house of David. Thus, the biblical archaeological website, biblicalarchaeology.org, reports as follows, Few modern biblical archaeology discoveries have caused as much excitement as the Tel Dan inscription, writing on a 9th century B.C. stone slab or stela that furnished the first historical evidence of King David from the Bible. The Tel Don inscription, or House of David inscription, was discovered in 1993 at the site of Tel Don in northern Israel in an excavation directed by Israeli archaeologist Avraham Biran. The broken and fragmentary inscription commemorates the victory of an Aramean king over his two southern neighbors the king of Israel and the king of the house of David. In the carefully incised text written in neat Aramaic characters, the Aramean king boasts that he, under the divine guidance of the god Hadad, vanquished several thousand Israelite and Judahite horsemen and charioteers before personally dispatching both of his royal opponents. Unfortunately, the recovered fragments of the house of David inscription do not preserve the names of the specific kings involved in this brutal encounter, but most scholars believe the Stella recounts a campaign of Hazael of Damascus in which he defeated both Jehoram of Israel and Ahaziah of Judah. What made the Tel Dan inscription one of the most exciting biblical archaeology discoveries for scholars and the broader public was its unprecedented reference to the house of David. End quote. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I do not need this discovery to convince me that David existed. But the fact that this historical evidence comes from the Tel Dan archaeological excavations is poetic. In Dan, the memory of the city of David was once assaulted. And now, in Israel, in a country where the true Sukkot is celebrated, it is in Dan where one can stand and marvel at the fact that Yeravam has failed, and that to this day, David lives. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together next week, signing off.